Hey, everybody, it is Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 35 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Every single week, we are talking pitching with the five time World Series champion and the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the ace researcher, James Smythe, and myself. And we have some current pitching topics that we're going to discuss here this week, but it's going to be our first guest in quite a while that we're having on the podcast this week as well. And James and I, we kind of get a sneak into, I guess, part of an elite fraternity here where we are discussing perfect games with two guys who have thrown perfect games. So, Coney, we are going to get to chat with a fellow perfect game thrower. It is your friend, your former teammate, David Boomer Wells, joining the show this week. Yeah, he's an original. I mean, if you don't know anything about David Boomer Wells, then you're going to learn something in this podcast, but he is one of a kind. He had a unique background the way he grew up. I met his mom, Attitude Annie. He grew up in San Diego. Attitude Annie was uh, part of the Hells Angels. So he, that, that was Boomer's childhood. His father wasn't around. I don't think he met his father until he was in his 20s. And Boomer, every time he threw a Little League game, you could hear the bikes pull up around the league. Can you imagine the Little League field? Here come the Hells Angels. And they're going to watch this kid throw a Little League game. And I think he had a deal with some of them that if, if he won or for every strikeout, he got a dollar or something. So he, that was his motivation. And, you know, you can just think about how unique that must have been, the way he grew up and then the way he's such a rebel against authority. And he's bumped heads his whole career, his whole life with authoritative figures on including Joe Torrey, the manager of the Yankees. So if you understand him and who he is, then you understand where he's coming from uh, and you get to know him. He's got one of the biggest hearts I've ever met. Uh, we, we came very close in the 98 season and in a historical season. And the year he threw his perfect game was on May 7th in 1998. So here we are all these years later on uh, May 17th, rather May 17th, that we're, we're going to record this podcast with, with David Wells. And I think that's a big reason, obviously, why we have David Wells on at this moment in time, May 17th, 1998, synonymous with a lot of Yankee fans and just the small group of pitchers that have thrown perfect games over time. And David, I know you've mentioned it numerous times when you talk about your perfect game. A lot of the memories are about the stories from other people and how much they remember about that day and not necessarily how much you remember of your your own motions that you kind of went through that day but I'm, I'm curious does the accomplishment of the perfect game stand out more I mean, maybe not stand out but like do you feel more of the accomplishment of that day or more of the memories when that date rolls around for you to me it it, it every year the more you know the further removed I get from that day the more I appreciate um, the random variance of a game like that yeah. and how, you know, it, people want to talk about, you know, Hey, you threw a perfect game. You're one of 23, but for me, it's more about, wow. Hey, you know, it's a team perfect game. Joe Girardi was a great catcher during that game called a perfect, called a perfect game, perfect game behind the plate and everybody, all the people, it meant so much to the generations of fans, you know, and I've said it again, I'll, I've said it before. I'll say it again, grandfathers and grandsons, grandmothers and granddaughters, Shaq, you've got your story where you're impacted by a singular day like that, that might, that you particularly remember more than anything. And when I hear those stories to me, that, that just brings it, brings it home that it's, it's much bigger than being one of 23 or anything I did that day. And so I'm not trying to diminish, you know, the accomplishment on a personal note, but 
it's so much bigger than that. And every year I get removed from it, I, I understand that even, even to a higher degree. It is still cool, though, to be part of that fraternity. <laughs> and I think it's also really cool that there's 23 perfect games all time. Boomer is 15 and you're 16 side by side. That's cool. Back to back years, obviously. But the memories, you're right. Uh, I mean, I, I attended David Wells's perfect game. May 17th, 1998 is a day I'm never going to forget. And I could tell you what the weather was like in the morning and how it developed into the afternoon. I can tell you the route that I went to the stadium on with my my aunt, my uncle and my sister. That's that's the party that, you know, took in that game. And I remember my aunt pointing out like the polo grounds where they were you know in an existence back in the day as we were driving to the stadium she she pointed that out to me hey this is where the new york giants played obviously it was beanie baby day i uh, you know i i, I bought a, a crew sweat i could tell you the price of the crew set sweatshirt that my uncle purchased for us it was just incredible it's 50 bucks by the way uh carvel ice cream a hot dog like anything you want to know about that day i can just spit it off to you and i i can't do that uh, about any other event I went to that vividly. So it really, I obviously can recall certain events that I've attended as a sports fan, but for that one, if you want any minute detail, I can give it to you. And then I wa was watching the game back a, a few days ago and James, we were discussing some of the little pitching nuances from, from Boomer Wells's perfect game, how he only had like 11 first pitch strikes to the 27 batters he faced. And that just felt absurdly low. So when you look at some of the finer details of this perfect game, a lot of people say, man, the most imperfect guy pitched a perfect game. Just be, and, and you're going to get a little bit of that when, when you hear our conversation with David Wells. I guess you could kind of understand it based on, Coney, what you were talking about a, a few minutes ago. But overall, he had a fabulous career. And he said it himself. A lot of people just remember me for the, that one singular event. But and not so much for my career, but man, 239 wins, James. And he, he could probably be, if you thought about it, like you and I were roughly the same age. And when we were growing up, you probably didn't appreciate some of the particular nuances of pitching that we do now, but my gosh, he had terrific control. I mean, elite control. And that was David Boomer Wells. Fantastic. And I wish we could have gotten into this too. And when, when we were kind of going over his career, but he had two separate seasons where he was top three in the Cy Young award voting. And for a guy who wasn't lighting up the radar gun, incredibly impressive. Yeah. Just terrific stuff. Uh, he gave us over an hour of time. It was great. And, and you're definitely going to watch and watch the YouTube stream for that as well, because he, there, there are certain points that he goes over and, and the, the visual, the YouTube stream will, will make it even better for you. But we will uh, we'll have this week in, in pitching history. We'll go on three up, three down as well. Let's open the show like we do every week, man. The, the opener, David, what do you have for us here this week? Well, I want to throw some love uh, St. Louis's way. The Cardinals have a battery that's like no other now. They broke a record, and that is Adam Wainwright, former uh, – uh, guest on our show and towing the slab was a, was a great guest for us. I think we all got to, to see a little more about Adam Wainwright and what he's all about. One of the, one of the best at his craft, one of the best curveballs I've ever seen, but also, uh, you know, when you think about Yadi Molina, his battery mate, two veteran guys that are now in the record books, all time battery in terms of wins, 203 
wins together uh, that uh, surpasses Warren Spahn and Del Crandall on the list. So that's going to be hard to break. I would imagine if you think about, you know, records that are hard to break, uh, that one's going to stand for a while. So you, you think about Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, maybe the best battery of all times in terms of, in, in terms of winning baseball games. It took almost 50 years for the Spahn and Crandall duo to be surpassed. And now you need, a really good young pitcher and a really good young catcher to come up together and stay together on the same team for 15 plus years, 20 years. It's going to be hard to do. David, you were there Sunday night in St. Louis. It was the Cardinals and the Giants and Wainwright was starting that game at this point in his career. When you're watching him live, what's jumping at out at you the most? How good his curveball still is, you know, to me, there's craftiness, you know, obviously he's throwing below hitting speed. A lot of times, you know, maybe averages 86, 87 miles an hour now on his fastball, but he cuts it. He sinks it. He knows what he's doing. There are subtle little nuances to pitching that, that are rare in today's game, but his curveball is still real. It's still elite in terms of spin rate. He threw one 2,900 RPM still. And the secret sauce for his curveball is, is usually when you see um, high spin rates on any pitch, the velocity is usually a little bit above average, whether it's a fastball, a curveball, a slider, a cutter, you name it. Uh, the, the, the spin rate usually correlates with velocity, but he throws it with, with a low velocity and a high spin rate. That's the secret sauce. It's so hard to do. You have to have tremendous finger strength, tremendous dexterity in your wrist to be able to spin a baseball like that, take velocity off of it in the low 70s and still get sharpness to it, still get a quick break, a two-plane break to it. Uh, that that is an elite curveball at 40 years old. It is still elite. All right, what jumped out at you watching closer Albert Pujols on the mound? I loved it. Uh, you know, in, in a blowout game, uh, we were talking about, you know, if you're going to have somebody designated to be your your blowout pitcher, and rarely do you see it on the winning side. You know, the Cardinals were winning that game, so they were winning by so many runs that they, they could still save a pitcher and, and Albert probably lobbied for it because the giants on the other side were using a, a position player to pitch as well. And my whole theory on it was throw the ephus, throw it with an arc, be a showman, entertain the fans. This is in the entertainment business. The last thing we need is an outfielder coming in, trying to gas it up, throwing at 83 miles an hour. Nobody wants to see you throw 83 miles an hour. Uh, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's have some art, you know, artistic ness to this. And to me, when, when uh, both sides started throwing Evises or sort of with a lot of arc in the lower 50s, hitters didn't know what to do with it. They were screwing themselves into the ground. There were some funny swings. People were laughing on both sides. It really saved a blowout game for us as a broadcast on ESPN on Sunday night. It kind of gave us something interesting to, to talk about for the last couple of innings. So I really applaud both sides. I applaud Albert Pujols for putting himself out there and, and, uh, and being entertaining and understanding that this is in the entertainment business as well. It looked like he had some fun as well. So I, I think he enjoyed himself there. He did, you know, dot the zone a little bit with some interesting pitches that were called strikes. He got, yes. you know, the moral to taken. the story is, is get some arc on it. Yeah. See if you can throw one in the thirties, forties. Yeah. Everybody talks about, um, uh, and Ted Williams hit, hit that big home run, uh, James, uh, in the all-star game off of, uh, Rip Sewell, uh, Rip Sewell. Exactly. Rip Sewell's name, uh, uh, sort of uh, eluded me there and everybody says oh see ted williams took a deep well rip was in the all-star game that's how effective that pitch was first people forget that you know it was a hard pitch to hit 
Ted Williams certainly hit the home run in the all-star game, but you don't get to the all-star game, you know, by chance that would, that, you know, he, he, it was a very effective pitch. We saw it the other night. If you're going to do this managers, position players, take note. Uh, if you're, you're the designated guy, practice it, get it in the strike zone, the higher the arc, the better it's hard to hit. And it's entertaining. Quick reminder. This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris cards. It is the most trusted sports card seller on the planet. Now, why is that? It's because Greg Morris cards has a ridiculous track record. They sell over 80,000 sports cards every single month exclusively on eBay. They sold over a million cards in 2021 alone. This month only, when you check out, send them a message through eBay saying that you heard about GMC through John Boy and get five bucks off your order of 50 bucks or more. GMC is known for its vintage cards, but they also have all the top players in the game today. The Otanis, the Judges, Trout, Harper, Soto, and they also have all the Young stars that David's talked about, the Bobby Witts, the Spencer Torkelsons, Wander Franco. So they have those guys as well. Why do people trust GMC for buying cards specifically? It's because Greg and his team hand grade every single card that they sell. So buyers have been trusting Greg's grades for years. If Greg says the card is mint, you know the card's mint. Go to gregmorriscards.com to see their inventory, follow GMC all over social media, see the exclusive content and deals. You get free combined shipping when you order two or more cards. And again, during the month of May, when you check out, send them a message through eBay saying that you heard about GMC through John Boy and get $5 off your order of $50 or more. We're talking about Albert Pujols. We're talking about Adam Wainwright. Those are two players that were big leaguers when... The main subject of this episode was still kicking it in the big leagues. David Wells started his big league career in the mid to late 80s, didn't retire until 2007 when he was 44 years of age, played for his hometown team. He played for the Yankees, won titles with the Yankees, with the Toronto Blue Jays, 239 career wins. And like we mentioned, this, this podcast is being released on May 18th. We're recording it with Boomer Wells on May 17th, the date that he will never forget. Most Yankee fans will never forget. May 17th, 1998, the author of A Perfect Game, the 15th ever, or beg your pardon, at the time, the 15th in Major League history. So without further ado, our guest on Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn this week is David Boomer Wells. David Boomer Wells joining us here this week, and we're going to have to go nicknames, obviously, for this episode. So we have Coney, we have Boomer. <laughs> Boomer, we Boomer. have also had a lot of former teammates and friends of Coney's on the podcast here, and I think we asked something similar each time. What made you first realize that Coney was like that foxhole type of teammate, that ride-or-die type of guy that you, you have as a friend? Well... Dave's probably my best friend and was in baseball, but in everyday life, even though I haven't talked to the son of a bitch in two and a half years, you know, and then I heard just recently that he went to ESPN and then I heard about the podcast and I'm like, why wasn't I the first guy to be on the podcast? Cause I, we, we talked about this years ago, him and I should get our own podcast and do it. And he goes, well, and then the other day when we were talking, he's like, you know, it's, it's, it's just tough, you know, to do that. I'm like, bull crap, dude, we can, <laughs> we would rock this thing if we did it. And, and I guarantee you a, a lot of people, I, if you go on social media there, everyone's like calling for 
Conan Wells in the booth. But the last time I was in the booth, I got fired. So <laughs> this is officially the the fest festivus podcast version right here. We're just going to air all of our grievances right here, get it all out. No, yes, it's true. I mean, no. you scare you scare people, Boomer. That's that's the, you're you're the best. You have the best content. You have the best personality. The people are afraid. They're just afraid. You know that you're just going to drop an f bomb on air or some, something's going to happen. You know, and so you know. Okay. You, Four years of TBS, no f bomb. <laughs> I dropped a fart on it though. You I did, did fart on live TV. You farted on fart. live TV because Ernie Ernie Ernie, uh, Ernie Johnson was asking like in cold weather. I said that's where I really shine because I like the cold weather. I was a big dude and all that. And he goes, so he goes, what did people do to uh, to uh, stay warm? I said, well, I remember one time in the locker room before the game. Roberto Alomar was just putting Vaseline all over his body. And, and I got my, and I even asked Roberto, I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, dude, it keeps you warm. I'm like, oh, okay. And I go, most people I said, Ernie goes, what'd you do? I said, I just put that hot bomb on me, that Kramer Jesus, all the, the hot bomb all over my shoulder, my back. He goes, Ooh, that's kind of smelly, isn't it? I go, no, that was just me. I just farted. And, and, and like everyone like freaked out on the set and I'm just like, it was only a fart guy and I didn't fart. So, and they like, like kind of freaked out producers yelling in my ear. What are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I didn't cuss. I just said fart. Is fart a cuss word now? It's like George Carlin. It's shit piss fuck cocksucker motherfucker tits. And now fart. <laughs> so it's like, wow. So anyways, to your first question, what'd you ask about, about Coney? Yeah. When, when did you get the, you know, the sense first time around? I know you guys were teammates in Toronto for the first time. When did you, when'd you first get that sense where you realized that he was a dude that you could, you know, be in a foxhole with sort of and, and be a, a trustworthy and reliable friend? Well, playing, you know, Dave was in the, in the National League for a good while and watching him in 86 and just him dominating the National League and me being in the American League, I'm like, wow, that guy's, that guy's badass. And then you hear the stories and I go, now he's even more badass. So to me, it was just like, I'd like to meet that guy sometime. And, and, and that happened in 1992 in Toronto. We traded for him. I think he was with Kansas City, I think, at the time. And so he came over and I just, I clinged on to him like, like stage five clinger. I just went right after him. I said, this guy's, he's mine. Nobody's taking him. And so I just said, you're my throwing partner. We're going to play catch every day. And we just kind of, we kind of gelled. And, and so, I mean, from day one, we were Foxhole guys, you know, right out of the shoot. And I, I might've bum rushed him a little too fast, but you know, he, he, he's a big boy. He could take it. And he was, you know, don't let those glasses fool you. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's the silent scumbag. So, so, so to me, it was just, you know, he was just a gamer and, and, you know, even though, he was more on the quiet side. I was kind of more on the vocal side. It just, it was, it was like a match made in heaven in, in my world. I don't know if he thinks that, but for me, it was, it was just great. And I just, you know, and that's where we just became great friends. And then, you know, and then we went, uh, when I signed with the Yankees in 97, he was there and it just, he just made me feel right at home. I mean, talk about going into New York, Yankee stadium, signing with wearing a pinstripes, you know, people get really, really nervous. And, but when you got a guy that you've known and became friends with, you know, Dave just made it that much easier for me just to fit in gel. And 
I, I never, I never even worried about anything being in New York. I said, the fan, he goes, the fans, the media, they could beat you. I said, they ain't going to work. They ain't going to beat me up. I'm going to beat them up. And, and it worked out. You know, I think that, you know, just to piggyback on that a little bit, Shaq and James, um, the best year of my career, the most fun I had in my career was with Boomer in 1998, the great 1998 team that is drawing comparisons to the current Yankees team because of the great start that the Yankees have got off to. Uh, Boomer, I finally just said, you know what, Boomer, let's just go. We're going to get our own hotel room on the road. We'd get a big suite in the middle. We'd invite all our team over. And we'd have single rooms on both sides. So Boomer would be on one side, I'd be on the other, and we'd have a big party suite in the middle. And every road trip, it just worked out to where wherever town, whatever town we were in, our teammates would join us. Boomer knows everybody. He knows actors, uh, musicians. I mean, if you ever need a ticket to a concert, Boomer's the guy to call. And we had just the best time on the road that year, the entire year. And it was the 98 Yankees. And Boomer got off on a roll. That was his perfect game year. Obviously, we're on the anniversary May 17th on this date back in 1998, that guy right there threw a perfect game, (laughs) most imperfect guy throwing the perfect game. But that particular year was just the best year uh, that I've ever had in baseball because it just loosened everybody up. And we, we just, uh, you know, you could walk into that suite on any given night. There might be Matthew McConaughey in there. There might be uh, some musician from, uh, you know, uh, from some, from some band that you definitely have heard of. So it was just remarkable. You know, that, that particular year was by and by far the best year I've ever had in pro ball. We're going to get into 98 and, and obviously we're recording on May 17th, the anniversary of your perfect game. But I guess before we get there, David opened the door. Boomer, how do you know so many people? Just, you know, by being out there, everyone, like all your managers and, coaches and owners like hey get your especially gene monahan make sure you get your seven eight hours of sleep every night i'm like no i i went out till 6 a.m every night then you meet a lot of people even on the dark side you meet a lot of people over there too so it just kind of worked out because i never stayed in the room and i was always trying to get to the concert because i I love music i i think if it wasn't for the music i don't think i'd have the career i did because the music just fired me up and Dave can contest every five days. The pitcher got to pick his music in the clubhouse and, and I would have Metallica. I'd have, you know, Van Halen, I'd have, you know, slip, not disturb, you know, all this, all these men and, and Joe would come in and turn it off and I'd go back and turn it back on. I'm like, Joe, what are you doing? He goes, nobody wants to hear this shit. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm pitching today. You want to win? leave me alone. And so we would get in those battles and finally I said, why don't you just take your ass outside, you know, go with the team during BP and just let me get ready the way I wanted to do. And so that's why I went to all these concerts and then Warren Michaels, you know, he's like a dad to me. So I got to know him. He took me under his wing. So I'm an SNL all the time. So I met all those actors and actresses that, that, uh, that were hosts or, or, or were on the show, then the musicians came in. And then, you know, I met people from Atlantic Records, uh, Nick and Andy Ferrara. And so Nick was uh, the attorney of a lot of bands and his wife, Andy, worked high up with Atlantic Records. So I got to meet a lot of people with them. So I was hanging out with, with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page there in New York on, in, in, down in, uh, in Soho, just 
at a pub just drinking beers and having a great time with them. And it just escalated. And, you know, cause they wanted to be us and we wanted to be them. And it just kind of worked out that way. And then meeting, you know, one actor and then it, it's like wildfire spreads in the next one. And then before you know it, you're welcomed everywhere. And so I would just bring these guys, you know, into our circle and, you know, come to games, leaving tickets at the games, go out and party with them afterwards. You know, like Tony said, we would get the suite and, you know, I'd have all these guys show up if we're in town. Let's go. Let's rock and roll. I remember in New York, we weren't in a suite, but we were over at the Four Seasons and it was Lars Ulrich. It was uh, John Goodman, Naomi Campbell, uh, Wyona Ryder. Uh, it was Elias Codiez, a bunch of us. And I said, let's go to Dorian's. <laughs> we all went over there. And it just turned into a shit show. It was, it was awesome. So that's how it kind of worked out. And, you know, and, and I, I stayed friends with all these guys. So that's why I could get a, probably a ticket anywhere I want to go. It was pretty cool. <laughs> that's the most eclectic group that I've heard in quite some time. Uh, but uh, you mentioning Lauren Michaels opens up the door to a seamless transition here. Uh, a lot of people know that you, in your story with the night before your perfect game, May 16th, 1998, you had that SNL party with Jimmy Fallon, and yeah. most people know that, that you pitched that game hungover from the SNL party <laughs> the night before. And when Coney talks about his perfect game, he, he talks about the, the memories, right, David, being the most, um, you know, most important or the most memorable thing that you remember about that day, the stories from others that approach you about the perfect game. Oh, I was there, and you know, or, or, Hey, I just missed it. You know, I had the opportunity to go and I turned it down. It's one of the big regrets I have of being a baseball fan, stuff like that for you. Um, and just a sub note here, I attended that game. So I remember everything about it as a fan. I was 11 years old, but boomer for you. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember coming into the clubhouse that morning and I was like, wow. And I, and Co and Dave's locker was next to mine. And I walked in and he just, he just, he did one of these. He goes, he goes, whoa. I go, what? And he goes, wow, dude. He goes, you got to go hide. And I go, why? He goes, you stink. <laughs> I go like, stink, like, like what? He goes, no, dude, you got alcohol all over it. He goes, go in the back room, go in the masseuse room and have Rohan work on your legs or, or something. You got to hide. I'm like, okay. So I did, I took his advice and, you know, I went in there. I said, Rohan, just, get on my legs because the first thing is going to go is your legs. And when your legs go, you're done for the day. You're going to, you're going to give up a lot of runs. So I, so I, that's what I did. And I hid and I went in there and it just got, you know, coffee, water, you know, about 10 bathroom sessions. And it just, it was, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I just go, Oh my God, is, is this going to really happen? Cause I, I was on maybe two, two and a half hours of sleep and blowing 5.0, it wasn't very, it wasn't very good. And, and my, my, the one that sticks out is my warm up was so bad because I'm a perfectionist when it comes to bullpens. I mean, I, I took my bullpen so seriously and, and I went out there and I was throwing 29 foot curveballs, fastballs all over the place. I threw two balls out of the stadium and, and Mel Sotomayor, boom, you're doing good. And I turned around, I looked at it, I said, don't patronize me. I said, this is the worst you've ever seen. I'm like, like, and I'm still hammered. I'm like, I'm not helping my case. After I said that, I go, what an asshole. What a dummy. I'm just like, what are you doing? 
And I said, Mel, this is about as good as it's going to be. And I said, let's go. And I cut my warm up short. We're walking into the dugout and I'm going by Joe and Mel's right behind me. And, and Joe always said, Hey, how'd you do it? I, I heard Joe go to Mel. Hey, how do you go? And he goes, Oh boss, he's good. He's good. And I just stopped and turned around and looked at him. I just gave him stink eye. I'm like, you call that good. So I went up in the, in the, uh, dressing room and I, you know, I changed out cause I was sweating profusely and I came out and that crap happened. But the, the good thing was nobody would talk to me. Like the fourth inning, nobody would say a word to me. I'd go sit by Tino or, or, or Paul and Neil, they'd get up and walk away. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I think it was in the eighth inning. Coney, he comes up to me and he goes, Hey, boomer. He goes, he goes, break out your knuckleball. I go, I don't throw a knuckleball. He's like, bullshit. I go, Coney, I don't throw any. He goes, we play catch every day. You got a great knuckleball. And I'm like, and I'm kind of arguing with him at the time. And then all of a sudden I get, I go, oh, oh, now I know what he's doing. He's trying to take my mind off of what's going on. Cause I'm, you know, by then you're in the eighth inning. You're just, you're, you're, you're nervous. You're tight. You just, he's, but he took my mind off of what was going on, which was awesome. So I go out for the eighth. I come back in. He's on the top step calling me a pussy. You show me nothing. His veins popping out of his forehead. You show me nothing. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, you didn't try to throw a knuckleball. I'm like, oh my God, what is he doing? But that took the edge off me. And, you know, only a guy that understood the game would do that. Nobody else in that dugout or probably on any other team would go up to a guy throwing a perfecto and, and then doing that. But I totally got it. And I knew it, but I just went with it. So it was good. <laughs> Thank God it worked out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We'd be singing you know? a different tune right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to me, that's, you know, in that game, I mean, just those little points right there helped me out. Because like I said, most people wouldn't do it. And, and, Dave, and Dave did it. But, you know, he's the master of the game. He, he dissects it. You know, that's why he was a player rep. He was very smart, intelligent. And, and he knew when to when to speak, when not to speak. And he, by God, I mean, for what, 20 something years, he's still trying to teach me and I don't get it. So it's like, <laughs> I still put my foot in my mouth a lot. So it's all right. But hey, that's me. Well, you had a two plane breaking ball boomer and you had a 2900 spin rate. I'm telling you right now, just eyeball eyeballing it. I can break <laughs> down your stuff right now to modern metrics. I can <laughs> tell you exactly what you had. You had that riding, you had a riding fastball that was deceptive and it was a, it was a high spin fastball. You had a high spin curveball, and, and you had probably some of the best control I've ever seen any pitcher have. I heard Hal McCray, the great Hal McCray talk about you saying that you were the best inside fastball pitcher, meaning a lefty to a right-handed batter that he'd ever seen that you just could pound the inside corner at will miss by an inch, miss by two inches, throw strikes in there better than any left-handed pitcher he had ever seen. And that's, that's the great Hal McCray played for the big yeah. red machine. One of the, Not maybe the greatest or, you know, one of the best DHs of all time, right behind Edgar Martinez in my mind, Hal McCray said that about you. No, that that's a great compliment. Cause you know, Hal was great. Cause he was there when I was with Cincinnati for a brief stint and, you know, his son junior, he, cause I, you know, I talked to Hal we, all the time, you know, in passing or I, I, I think we, might have played together at one point in time. And, and he kind of, he says, man, he goes, my dad loves you. He goes, he goes, you took the ball and you, and you just, you did your business. You didn't do, 
you didn't stray from anything. You get pissed off. You would, you would throw in more and more. He goes, but he says, you could hit a Nats ass at 90, at 60 feet, six inches, nine times out of 10. And I, and I go, well, thank you. But it was true. I could, but you know, it's just being a master of your craft and, and taking, like I say, like Darren Bosley, he was the Padres pitching coach. Um, and when I came to San Diego, he would get all the young guys two days after I pitched and I would have like seven or eight guys in the bullpen watching me throw bullpens. And I mean, cause he says, that's, that's how you throw bullpens and that gets you ready for what you have to do on the mound. And I mean, that's another, you know, great compliment, but to me, you have to do that. And a lot of guys can't do that. And to me, it was, it was something I was just, I was gifted. I'm one of those, I was one of those guys that was, you know, wasn't gifted with, with the brains, but, with the ability to throw strikes. Tony even said, he goes, dude, you throw too many strikes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what's that mean? He goes, it's not a bad compliment. It's just, he goes, you could have messed around a little bit and probably had a better ERA instead of challenging everybody. But I didn't care. I was like Jack Morris. I didn't care about my ERA. It was all about the W's. What, can you tell me what does a Nats ass look like? Have you ever seen one? <laughs> yeah, well, you get a microscope when you when you catch one, you really pull it in. You'd be surprised; they're similar to ours. <laughs> but yeah, seven hundred and nineteen walks in three thousand four hundred and thirty nine career innings—ridiculous control. Well, that that's tainted a little bit because a lot of umpires squeezed me later on in the game, so it's six hundred. <laughs> it is true you know i mean i think you know another you know point here to jump in you know Shaq and james is you know boomer was much maligned you know we talked and we joke you know he was hung over on the day through his perfect game early in his career the blue jays tried to control him he had issues they ended up releasing him and then getting him back when the trade for clemens later how ironic is that after 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 kind of you know dumping on him early in his career and yeah, you don't take care of yourself you don't do this you don't take it seriously he started the big leagues and when he's 24 he left the big leagues and when he was 44 he's 20 <laughs> years the guy paid so he was doing something right all those years and to me the biggest irony is that you know aside from the emotional you know the, the, the emotional output that he had when he was traded from the yankees for roger clemens it was the Blue Jays of all things, the one, the ones who gave up on him early in his career. You know, and and that, and that to me, going in the minor leagues with with Toronto, I mean, I'm fresh out of high school. I'm 175, 178 pounds out of high school, bringing bringing it. You know, throwing being a lefty, throwing 96 miles an hour, and and then like. Two years into my minor league career, they're, now they're worrying about my weight. I mean, I'm 195 coming into spring training, and they want me to weigh, you know, 185. I'm like, what are you guys doing? You know, I'm getting older. I'm getting bigger. I'm, I'm working out. I'm running a lot. I'm doing that. And then that's where it really started was like my third or fourth year in, in the minor leagues. They started weighing me, you know, and then finding me $100 a pound, I was overweight. I mean, and I'm under 200 pounds and they're like trying to monitor me. And that's where I just, that's where I became really distraught with the organizations, with authority. I'm like, piss on these guys. I'm going to do it my way. And, and that's, you know, so I, I took that into my whole career. And 
that's why I, I think I got the, you know, the bad boy image, uh, you know, nine teams <laughs> to, to be honest with you. I said, just leave me alone and, and let me do my thing and don't worry about how I look. Just look at the results that I'm, I'm putting up. And, but they never, they never saw it that way. And, and I fought them tooth and nail, you know, till the last day of my, the last pitch I ever threw in the big leagues. So to me, it's, you know, when you got a good horse, you know, run with it. Don't, don't put it down. Don't, no, don't euthanize it and, you know, and, and kill that, that one product that you have there that's going to be consistent. And, and that's just what I dealt with. So I just got a really bad rap through, obviously through the, uh, the front office going from team to team. You know, it's like with in, in New York when I signed in 97. You know, I almost got in a fight with George Steinbrenner. I ran him out of the clubhouse, you know, and it's, it's just something like he told me, because in 97 in the playoffs when I was with Baltimore, um, or 96, uh, Jeter hit a home run, I think, off Benitez or something, right field, and Tony Tarasco was camping underneath it, and Richie Garcia called a home run, and that Jeffrey Merrick leaned over and caught it. So the next year, I'm with the Yankees. It was uh, Pedro and I going toe-to-toe, and Darren Fletcher did the same thing, and the same thing happened. And so I went in the clubhouse, you know, and George was in there with Nick Peori, and he's like – I go, George, I said, you've got, you got to do something with that fence. I said, last year, it benefited you. Today, it, it hurt us. And he looked at me. He goes, you ain't no pitcher. I said, excuse me? He goes, you ain't the pitcher I signed. I, and I looked at I go, what's that supposed to mean? He goes, it is what it is. I said, well, if you don't like me, why don't you trade me? He goes, I tried. Nobody wanted you. And that, well, that pissed me off. So I got in his face, and I, I threatened him, you know, to kick his ass. I said, listen, I'm going to go get some ice, George. And this was, I pitched seven or eight innings that day. And I said, I'm going to come back. When I come back out after getting ice, if you're in there, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. He goes, I'm not afraid of you. And he got in my face. I'm like, hmm, okay, we'll see. And I, sure enough, I went in and got ice and came out. He's sitting there right in front of my locker. I said, you still in here? And I started ripping off the ice off me. And I, I ran after him. Out the door he went, and, and the, I think the only guy was in it was Daryl Strawberry. Daryl was hiding behind one of the podiums, and or the, the the columns in the in the clubhouse. And I'm like, "Get your ass out of here, you old man! Go up and watch it in your in your suite." And I literally ran his ass out of the clubhouse. And then the next day, I came in, and uh, and I walked by the. I was going into the lounge, and I heard the phone ring outside of uh, Joe's office. So I picked it up. I go, Yankee Stadium, second base. May I help you? Who is this? And I knew who it was. And I go, he goes, this is George Steinbrenner. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? This is Boomer. He goes, and he was silent. I said, hey, George, I just want to apologize for yesterday. And I said, that was really uncalled for on my part. I shouldn't have said that to you. Shouldn't have done that to you. He goes, you wait right there. And he came down. We went in Joe's office for about 30 minutes. We talked. We hashed it out. He, Got up, he gave me a big old hug, a kiss on the cheek. He goes, you're my guy. And, and that's kind of how I won George Steinbrenner over. But you got to threaten him, I guess. <laughs> I'll say not- this. From, you know, from then, even before then, and then to this day, the porch giveth, the porch taketh. They're still talking about just, just the other week going up against, who was it? The, not the Guardian, Rangers. it was against the Blue Jays. In that series, we saw multiple instances. It was the Rangers, actually. My yeah, Chris corrected. Woodward, Chris. the manager of the Rangers, yeah, made a comment. 
Yeah, about called it a uh, little league ballpark. Little, yeah. And obviously the same answer, the same quick answer that he receives was the same answer that so many people have received. Well, both teams play with the same dimensions. We're, we're still seeing it, even in the new stadium. Something that Coney touched on moments earlier, I wanted to ask you because you're talking about your trials and tribulations in your first stint with the Blue Jays. So you entered the big leagues at 24, you retire at 44, but you didn't become a full-time starting pitcher until you were 30 years old. No. Did something click there for that to turn around and, and, and go in that direction as a full-time starter? Or did you have to get away from Toronto based on everything that you were explaining to us? Well, that, that's a great point because, you know, I, I look back and, yeah, I should have been out of Toronto way before that because I came up as a starter. My first two starts when I got called up in, 90, in 87 – was against Kansas City, and they were in the first place in the uh, in the Central, and I lost that game. And then my next start was against the Yankees at Exhibition Stadium, uh, and against Ron Guidry, my idol. I'm towing the the mound with my idol, and I was like, "Oh my God, you couldn't get a grease needle up my behind." That's how nervous <laughs> I was. And so I go out there and first batter Ricky Henderson. I think I walked him and then picked him off, and then. Uh, and then Mattingly was my first strikeout. So I'm like, okay, but I lost the game. 0-2, I get sent down. And then I come back up in September as a, as, as a bullpen. So Dave LaRoche, you know, talked the, or the Blue Jays. He goes, hey, he's, he's great out of the bullpen, blah, blah, blah. Let's make him start. And that's where I kind of shine. So I'm in the bullpen for a couple of years. And then Dave Steve went down with back injury. And I came in and I spot started for him. I think it was in 89 or 90 and I won 15 games that year as a starter. And then Dave comes back and I go right back to the bullpen. I'm like, what's going on? I, I think I deserve, you know, to be a starter, boot somebody else out of the, out of the rotation. I think John Cerruti was there, Todd Stottlemyre, and, but Todd was a bonus baby, you know, so they were really high on Todd and, and all that. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I get thrown right back into the bullpen. And I was just, and then that pissed me off. And so then, you know, I just, I was just like, I don't even want to be here anymore. And it, and it stunk that the fact that I do that, because I came up as a starter my whole minor league career. And then I go to the bullpen, which is great. But I went into, I went into the front, I went to CETO and Pat Gillick. And I said, listen, in spring training, I said, you make me one or another. You make me a starter or you make me a full-time reliever. I don't want to do both. And then next thing you know, I got released. <laughs> so I'm like, what the hell? I said, but I was so happy to get released. It was, you couldn't imagine. The fans in Toronto were great. They were awesome. It was an unbelievable city. But the front office, Pat Gillick, I mean, he, I, I, I think he ruined, he tried to ruin my career the way that I look at it because he treated me. He always had me weigh in, um, all that kind of stuff. So I learned how to doctor the scale to stay underweight and all that. And I would just pay off the trainers, you know, I'd just say, I'd lie. It's just life for me. I'll give you a hundred bucks. So they would do it because they needed the money as well. So, but to me to get out of there and then Sparky, I, I got released and Sparky Anderson called me and said, Hey, you're going to be my fifth starter. I said, where do I sign? Cause I had so many offers out there, but spot starter bullpen. I said, Nope, Nope, Nope. Even Mel Stoudemire called me from the Mets and wanted me to do, do that. Be a spot starter. I said, Nope. Sparky said, boom, and I took less money, 
went to Detroit and that's where, you know, my, my starting career began. What was Mark Anderson like in those days? He was awesome. Best manager I ever played for. Nobody can top him. He just, he taught me so much as a human being on and off the field stuff off the field didn't kind of work very well, but, but still he gave me, he gave me a pretty good inclination of how things work, you know, but he just wanted you to be accountable on the mound. He wanted you to be like George Steinberg said, I want, I want warriors. That was, that was Sparky Anderson. And, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't pull you out. He goes, your job's to go nine. I remember three games in a row in Detroit. I had eight, two thirds shutout. I couldn't get the last out. One game I threw 152 pitches and he finally came out and got me. Then he called me a pussy as I was walking off the mound. I'm like, what do you, what do you, I go, what does that mean? And he just ignored me. And the next day I'm doing the bucket and he came out and he goes, what's wrong with you? I go, I go, I got the monkey on my back, Sparky. He goes, you know what that monkey's called? I go, what? He goes, pussy. I said, you keep calling me a pussy. I'm going to beat you up. He goes, you ain't going to do shit. And I'm like, Sparky, come on. Don't, don't mess with me. Sure enough. He walked away. He got about 20 feet away from me. Turned around. He flipped me off and he called me a pussy. And I, I ran after him and I dove and I clipped his back leg and he went down and I picked him up by his legs and I ran and I, and I just held him like this. And I ran through the infield, the outfield, I was flipping him. And all of a sudden I, I, I looked at the left. Here comes Kirk Gibson trucking after me i'm like oh my god i'm gonna <laughs> die and i he ran me right into the clubhouse i ran into sparky's anderson's office and i locked the door and gibby's trying to knock the door down i'm like he's like boomer get out i said no i'm not doing that he goes leave that guy alone he's fragile i said i'm sensitive <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah but sparky was just so awesome he would just he wanted you to finish the game so bad he didn't want Mike Hanneman coming in. He's going to get his. We wanted us to get ours. So that's why he was so good. But if you looked in the dugout at any time for help, you were gone. And he might go to AAA or AA the next day. That's how Sparky was. Guys, the temperature is increasing, and that means one thing. Sweaty sack summer is approaching, and it's time for you to prioritize the comfort of your crotch. That's why the kings of crotch comfort, Manscaped, have spent two years designing the most comfortable boxer briefs out there. I've had the honor of testing out these new boxers, and I can say it is the softest fabric of any underwear. It's incredibly breathable. And for those who know me personally, they know I like to wear some tight pants, and it's just my style. Don't judge here. But they breathe through all that tight traffic down there. Manscaped even trademarked the jewel pouch. Yes, the jewel pouch, so you know it is serious. This is literally a self-investment product. And we know that the best investment you can make is on yourself. So let your bulge breathe, get 20% off and free shipping by using code slab at manscaped.com. And I need to read a text here from my good friend, Bobby, who without solicitation dropped this in a group text with my friends and I the other day, bring it up on my laptop. He said, quote, the free ball conditioner thing that they, Manscaped, throws in there, smells so damn good, and my balls have never been the best smelling part of my body until now. That free conditioner, it comes with a lawnmower 4.0. It's the best electric trimmer for below-the-waist grooming. This trimmer offers skin-safe technology designed to trim hair on loose skin. We know that is a touchy area for some. Get 20% off free shipping 
with the code SLAB at manscaped.com. 20% off and free shipping with the code SLAB at manscaped.com. Once the boxers 2.0 touch your sack, you'll never go back. James, you got any, anything to put into context here on Boomer Boomer's career, all those teams, 20 years? Uh, just uh, remarkable to have the kind of career he did going from 87 to 07, still getting it done, even though going back home to the Padres in 06 uh, late in his career, but 239 wins. And uh, we'll even do- go into a, a career war, you know, a little more new school analytics. 53.6 war and anytime you get over 50 for a career is really impressive well, i don't know the war stuff i don't know those that's that's david and your guys I you would like that Chat masterson's right <laughs> yes. there but yeah i mean i don't know i was just gonna ask you is, is 50 good but you already solidified that but just imagine just imagine that when I came up with Toronto in 87, if they would have just left me a starter, like they did in Atlanta with Glavin, Smoltz, Avery, um, all those guys, they left them alone. They learned how to pitch, you know, whether they did good or bad, they, they, they blend them and molded them into being starters. That's all they had to do. If I would have stayed a starter for those six years, I was in the bullpen with Toronto, that would put me well over 300 wins, you know, and I guess nowadays that's a lock for the hall of fame if you get 300 wins but that's why i was pissed off because pat gillick kept messing with me and then sending me down because back then they they had the politics game after five after six years they can't send you down you're a free agent so they would send you down on purpose they did that to uh luis leal he had like i don't know like maybe a couple weeks or whatever to get six years in and they sent him down and he never saw the big leagues again and but that's just how they did it back in the, in the days because they were trying to save money. Oh, I was making a whopping sixty-two-five back then, so it was you know it was great. They still Come a long have their way. Yeah. yeah, they still have yeah, their tricks but, today. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's what I'm saying. If we played today, Coney would be Coney was always high on the on the salary list. I was you know below the middle, um, but I was putting up good numbers as everybody else. But I just couldn't seem to get that 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 big big contract but can you imagine if coney and i were playing today with the stuff that we had we'd be making 40 million a year it'd be we'd have these two three hundred million dollar contracts but on, on the flip side of that what sucks is that we set the tone and the guys before us set the tone for what is going on with these salaries and now these guys that are making all these they have no clue who Dave and I are these days. That's what, that's what kind of baffles me and, and bums me out about the game. These guys aren't history guys. They're, they're all about, you know, the money and doing their, their things or social media now, now that it's out there, but they couldn't, they couldn't really tell you who played back in the eighties and nineties. I don't think they could. Some you can. agree, Dave? You'd be surprised. Yeah. I, I know it's, it's always been a battle forever about, teaching the history of the game when Marvin Miller came in the history of the players association and uh, the sacrifices made before. So, yeah, I mean, if you talk to Max Scherzer, he knows, you know, yeah. he, he was on the front lines. So there's more out there than, than, than you think, but yes, it's always been a battle of trying to pass on that knowledge because you know, there, there was some real struggle back then guys, you know, when they gave up their salaries, when they went on strike, 
that there was some hardship. They couldn't pay their mortgages. They couldn't right. pay their car payments or they had trouble feeding their families, putting food on the table back in the day, so to speak. So yes, uh, there's sacrifice and then there's sacrifice. And that's something that needs to be passed on. So you're right about that. That's, that's a lesson that really needs to be taught and continued to kind of hammered at to let these guys know, even through this year, through the year, through the lockout that we just saw uh, that, you know, that there has been gains made over the years, going back to Kurt flood, that, that, that story always needs to be told because it's really important to understand the history of, of what's happened in this game uh, on the player side, especially. Amen to that. Boomer James mentioned your war a few moments ago and we, on this podcast, we talk about all the information and the data that pitchers can use in today's game. What did David Wells absolutely have to know about himself or his opponent on the days that he was starting? Well, for me, you know, once I became established, I already knew. I Because with me, I had good control. So, you know, my curveball was probably my best pitch and everything else was secondary because I had a really good curveball. Um, you know, I can, tw- I had the 12 to six and then the back footer. So I had two different types of curveballs. Um, you know, and then I would just float one in, you know, take a little bit off and float it in to get ahead in the count. But uh, for me, it was knowing, being comfortable with my, with my ability to throw strikes. So we would always have these meetings on the hitters and, you know, hey, first pitch fastball hitter. This guy's a first pitch off speed hitter. And doing that. So we would go through all those. I tried those. A lot of times it didn't work. You know, something these scouting reports, these guys are really good at what they do, but sometimes they weren't, you know, on, you know, to me, I think sometimes it was backwards. So I just took it to my accountability. It's just, you know what, I trust my ability. So I'm gonna pitch my way. And you can't go wrong by pitching in. So you get guys so conscious looking in, looking in, looking in. Then you backdoor a cutter. When I, when I started throwing the cutter, it was a huge pitch. I would just backdoor it, and they would just sit there and look at it, you know, and have no clue. So to me, or I throw the two-seamer away off the plate because I could throw the same pitch three times in a row. And so for me, it was I pitched my way, not what I was told on the scouting reports and all that. But I did rely on my catcher's. 100% because I hated to shake. I remember, and Dave was there when Jorge and I got into a big old battle and I, he, I kept shaking because he, I wanted my pitchers to know what I threw in certain counts and that's all. And it's not that hard. You just, you got to do that. But to, to, to Jorge's, uh, you know, for, to be fair with him, he had a lot of guys he had to catch. So you can't really remember everybody's, thing but a good catcher would do that and he turned out to be that guy that could read everybody's thing so I hated to pitch or call um shake guys off I just wanted you have to be in sync with me and so to me once you establish that then that makes the game a lot easier and then I'm going to take the blame for everything that happens in that game not because you know and if a guy if a hitter's moving his feet in the box I want my catcher to know what he's doing and then call the pitch accordingly because I trust him that much. So if a guy's moving in on the plate, I'm coming in on him. If a guy's moving away from the plate, I'll go away with him and make him run out of bat. So to me, that was my, my biggest pet peeve 
is, you know, going out there and making sure that I had my ability and I could pitch the way I wanted to. And, you know, and it's my fault if I made a mistake and I made plenty of them, but at least I was accountable and didn't point the finger, you know, and throw my hands up and all that. It's just, you never want to show your teammates up. And that's one thing I really tried not to do is show your, your teammates up because when you do that, then it becomes turmoil. And it's, that's hard to, that's hard to get the trust back with these players because they're so stubborn. Tony, two really important points there to re, just, just to reiterate exactly what David's saying there for you, for young pitchers or, or any, any pitcher out there when you're struggling or you're you're in search mode, pitch to your strengths. That's what Boomer did. Pitch to your strengths more than, than the hitters weaknesses. <clears throat> when in doubt, pitch to your strengths. And secondly, don't think about the selection process as much, you know, Boomer was more like Mark Burley and I don't want to shake you off to the catcher. Let's work really quickly tell me where you want it. And I'm going to execute. I'm going to put all my emphasis on execution and not the selection and not oh, I need to throw this pitch in this count or the, or whatnot. If I throw a high quality pitch, you can almost tell the hitter it's coming. If it's a high quality pitch, it's more times than not, it's going to work. So very good lessons for young pitchers. If you're struggling out there, pitch to your strengths, work fast, and just throw what the catcher's uh, calling. Trust, trust your catcher and, and, and just worry about location or the quality of the pitch that you're throwing. And, and that's great because you brought up Mark Burley, who I, I love to death. He's a great teammate. So when I was in Chicago, you know, that, that brief stint, I only played half a season because I had back surgery. But Mark came up to me and he goes, he goes, Boomer, he goes, he goes, I want to pitch like you. He goes, I want to learn everything. So I, I kind of I groomed him. I mean, he already had impeccable stuff anyway. He wasn't overpowering, but he knew how to pitch. And, and I would just, I would talk with him. We would talk through the games and he really gelled and he came into his own. But to me, it, it makes me feel good for a guy that's going to listen and who's had a great, good career by not being overpowering. And towards the end of my career, I wasn't overpowering, but I still got guys out pretty easy. And, but when you, when you get a guy that, you know, a prodigy like that, that you could, uh, that you could teach and he takes that craft into his own and then he becomes a superstar that makes you feel pretty good. And, and with Mark he, and Mark will tell you, he goes, yeah, Boomer taught me a lot. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's a feel good thing because now, you know, these guys are teachable. Some guys you can't teach and they're stubborn. Oh, I know what I'm doing. And that's what happened with Roy Halliday. He came up in 2000 when I won 20 games that year, I'm having a great, I'm 15 and three at the all-star break and I'm trying to it, teaching and chris carpenter pat hankin those guys are like wow oh, what's that and i'm trying to talk to roy roy's like i know what i'm doing he had the best stuff i've ever seen and and he couldn't get anybody out and i'm just trying to work with them and he kind of big leaked me a little bit and then all of a sudden mel queen takes him down to a ball he came back a monster and it was but he learned and he thanked me later on in his career he goes boomer he goes i should have listened to you because you really know how to pitch I said, well, that's if you know and you understand your craft and you pitch to your strengths, everything, it, it makes the game a lot easier instead of trying to think through and, and going on what the, the scouting report says. Sometimes you got to go off the beaten path to be successful. It's great to hear about some of the guys you mentored. Was there a pitcher when you were younger that, that you learned a lot from? I watched, you know, coming out, I was Ron Guidry. And Steve Carlton, but I couldn't throw like Ron Guidry. He was a herky jerky, 
you know, sling guy, but I was in double A and Larry Hardy was my pitching coach. And back then they had the beta and the VHS. So I, I bought a VCR and he had tape of Ron Guidry when I was our uh, uh, Steve Carlton, when I was in the minor leagues. So I would go home after the games and study uh, Steve Carlton because we had the same similarities in, in our windup, you know, in the mechanics. So I tried to throw like Steve Carlton and it worked because that it gave me a lot better, you know, control. So I could repeat my mechanics. And when you repeat your mechanics, you're going to throw strikes. You're going to keep the team in the ball game as long as you don't make mistakes, which we all do. You're not going to win every game. But to me, I, I idolized uh, Steve Carlton because of his mechanics and the way he pitched. I mean, he was a lefty as well, but Gator was my guy. I just idolized him growing up, but I just took everything from everybody. You know, I would watch David when he was in National League, you know, he'd be three quarter, all of a sudden he'd do a Laredo down there, but just sometimes he would get really high and then drop and drive. And I was just more of a, a drop and drive guy, but he did some things. So I kind of took things from everybody through my career watching guys and just trying to implement it, you know, to give it just a different look. And, you know, to me, you just make little tweaks like that it can solidify you as, as a superstar like that, if you get it, because then you're changing the hitters eyes and you're not doing the same thing. Cause a lot of these hitters are so good. They just sit on you and, and they watch it. But if you could do something out of character, they're like, and all of a sudden their mind's spinning and they're like, Whoa, I gotta, I gotta figure this guy out. And to me, it's, it's getting in the heads of, of the hitters. And sometimes you got to throw one underneath their chin to let them know you're out there. They don't want to get hit. It hurts. So you back them off, move their feet, and you do all that stuff. But you don't see that nowadays. There's one last thing I want to ask you, Boomer, but I also want to ask it to Coney. So I'll ask it to you, you both, since you both threw perfect games. And Boomer, going back and watching your perfect game, there are a lot of things obviously stand out. And you talking about you know, throwing some backdoor pitches and freezing hitters and just trying to establish the inside part of the zone, varying your locations at all comes back after I watch it, but you watch your broadcast and you have the great Jim Cott. You have the great Ken Singleton always talking about how much momentum you gain from making sure that that leadoff batter, every frame is an out and you're retiring that leadoff guy. But for both of you throughout your careers, not just with your perfect games, what was the one singular thing that you did on the mound that you felt gave you the most momentum? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I think for me, you know, it's everybody um, talks about getting ahead. It certainly makes sense. The difference between 01 and 10, you know, we've heard that James has given us many of numbers, uh, you know, that show the difference between 01 and 10. So yeah, it starts there. But for me, the difference is, is when that doesn't happen, when you fall behind, how do you pitch? You know, 60% of the time, just 60% of the time, pitchers get strike one on average in the big leagues. And that's been pretty steady for a lot of years, give or take a couple of percentage points. So the other 40% of the time, what do you do? And do you have pitches that can get you back into the count? And David uh, Boomer talks about, you know, taking a little bit off of his curveball when you need to get a strike. And to me, that was really the key lesson to learn you know, and they talk about pitching backwards or being able to land your curveball, being able to get a strike to get back into the counts uh, to me was a difference maker to, to, to prove that you could do that. Once you proved you could do that, then, Major league hitters kind of got off your fastball a little bit. 
they, they, they gave you a little more respect in terms of just sitting on you or keyholing a two, one fastball. If you proved, or even three, one, sometimes you can drop a curveball in there just to show the other side that you could do that. To me, that was a real difference maker. It, it's easy to say, Hey, get strike one. Well, what happens when it doesn't happen? What do you do if you don't, what do you do when you get two Oh, yeah, you didn't, not only did you not get strike one, you didn't get, uh, you got two balls before you got a strike. What do you do then? So to me, that, that was the key to be able to prove that you can, you had something else to get strikes with, you know, on the off-speed side, on your secondary pitch side. And, and, and that's, that's, that's spot on because, you know, your pitching coaches, even your manager, they, they, they can't stress enough how to get ahead in the count. You know, you, they want to get strike one. And like I said, for me, it was easier because my curveball was so good and I could throw it for strike. So I could throw it at any time in the count. And, and so that kind of gave me the edge. And, but my biggest thing was I hated to walk guys. You never want to walk a guy, especially the leadoff hitter, because you might know the percentage. I think it's probably 70, 80 percent of the time they score. It's, it's pretty high. It's a pretty high you know, number of, of leadoff walks and, and whatever it is. I'd rather give up a hit. So to me, it was it was going out there. Like I said, like Dave said, if you go one oh and two oh, what do you do? You just don't groove it. You know, I learned once I learned how to pitch later on in my career, I would throw that two that that two oh uh two seamer, you know, and it would just, you know, a little bit of movement. And these guys are teeing off. There's a lot most of the guys are swinging out of their shoes regardless, you know, 2-0, 1-0. And you, you get them the, a lazy ground ball. Now you got a two-out ground ball out or a 2-0 strike. So now it's 2-1 or 1-1. And, and to me, that's it. Now you can get back into the count to where now this guy, what's he going to throw now? He's still going to throw a fastball. Whoop, you throw a little curveball in there or a nice little changeup and to get them on their front foot. Because when they're in, in, in fastball mode, a lot of guys throw changeups and it's kind of the norm. Now I see, I seen it, you know, when I retired, I, especially the Colorado guys, you know, those guys do changeups like crazy. They were like the masters of that in 2000, you know, eight, nine, 10, those guys were throwing changeups like crazy and, and, you know, three, two changeups and all that and getting these guys out of those mode. And if you can control that changeup, which is very hard, you know, you're, you're going to be ahead of the game and these hitters will find out, oh, I can't sit on a fastball. This guy's been throwing me changeups like crazy. So if it works, go and tell. But my, one of my things was if, if they can't hit it, keep throwing it until they can prove to you that they can hit it. And I did that a lot, you know, throughout my career. You mentioned working from behind in the count in your perfect game. You fell behind, in, especially in the later innings. First pitch ball on eight straight batters, all three batters in the seventh, all three batters in the eighth, and the first two in the ninth before you got an 0-1 on Pat Mears before you got the final out. So you were showing right there that you were able to work behind in the count and still get guys out. Uh, that was still the alcohol talking in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what you have to do. And, and that, to me, you know, when you look back at the perfect game, you know, even though I, I didn't feel my best, but I had really good stuff that day. Cause that first pitch I threw of the game was like 95 and I'm like, where'd that come from? So that kind of set the tone, but that's where you rely on your catcher, you know? And to me, when you're out there, you're not shaking, you're not taking, because I always felt, and, and Mike Flanagan um, taught me back in 80, 88 or 89 when we were teammates in Toronto, 
that he goes, the faster you work, you know, you keep your teammates on their toes. But if you drag and everything, they're going to be, they're not going to be in position. They're not going to be ready. So speed the game up. And I, so I tried to speed the game up as much as I could. And then you go back and you watch Mark Burley. As soon as he got that ball, he was throwing, you know, and, and that's what I did with Cleveland, especially Manny Marrera, uh, Ramirez. He was such a good hitter. And those types of hitters, you just tried to, you tried to speed pitch him, get the ball and go and make them time out and get them out of their rhythm. That's why I was very successful against those guys because I would pitch, I wouldn't let them have their time to set their feet. I'm already throwing. They call timeout half the time. Then they would get frustrated. And once they got frustrated, I knew I had them. So those are the types of things that you have to do. But like I said, when you get behind the count, I always went to the two seamer and it bailed me out so many times, you know? So to me, that was a good pitch to have. So I wasn't, you know, it's like uh, Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn, best two strike hitters in the game. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't press. They didn't, they didn't, you know, oh my God, they just, you know, they went with the flow and they went with the pitch. And that's why they were great hitters. So to me, if the pitchers can do the same thing. Tony, what do you think? I know David, I know, I know Boomer would say, oh, I don't need pitch comp. And I don't think he would, obviously. He only needs him and his catcher to call a good game. But based on the way he works fast, likes to make sure hitters, you know, or, or, you know, if he was going, the hitters weren't getting their feet settled. If he was using pitch com and based on everybody that David Boomer Wells knows throughout his playing career and his personal life. Now, all those stars who would be the most ideal voice for Boomer in that pitch com headset. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> you, can, you know, you pick out a rock star, maybe, uh, maybe the drummer for Metallica, Lars could get in his ear, right? <laughs> that, would, that would be pretty good. Throw the fastball down and away, two-seamer. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. Guys are scared. They're afraid to throw pitches in certain counts. Just relax. Relax and go out there and just have fun. That, to me, is great because when you have a good pitching coach that can talk to you and Dave can contest. I've had a lot of pitching coaches in my time. Mel Stoudemire was so good at, at talking to you and – and betting things that you normally wouldn't do, and you go out and do it, and you're then you go, wow, that's that was pretty good. That's that's pretty neat. But Mel had a really good knack on how to work with the pitchers and and make them feel comfortable. He's not that guy in your face that's going to yell at you and all that. Most, and, most and positive you, guy ever. Most positive, upbeat man I think I've ever been around in the game. Yeah, and and you know another guy was Galen Cisco. Galen Cisco was really good in Toronto. That you know, really understood the pitching aspect. And, and he's the one that kind of taught me the cutter. Um, and that was really late in my career. And then, and then uh, you know, and then to use it. But, you know, our Mel, Mel taught me the cutter. And then, and then when I went to Toronto, Galen kind of helped it out because he was really big on that pitch too. So to me, it's like, just work with it. And you get frustrated when you, don't, when you can't throw it. It just spends. And it's not getting cut. Stay on top of it. Fastball, 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 cutter. As long as you stay on top of it and get through and get extended, you're like, oh, wow. But they would work with you. And you'd get pissed off in there. You're wanting to fight the whole world. And they're just like, take a deep breath, bro. Just do that. It's like, you know, have a good bro session. And, you know, you'll be surprised the patience that these guys have to make you better. Because they know that you're, you're, you have it in you. But sometimes we doubt ourselves, and that's why a good pitching coach is always 
beneficial to go out there and, you know, and, and relax. That's why they come out and talk to you. Sometimes just give you a breather. They know that, you know, you just didn't want to see the manager come out because then, you know, uh Oh, what's going to, what's going to happen. They, I didn't like managers, you know, to come out and talk to me. I just get away from me. What are you going to tell me that I don't already know? I got a pitching coach in there that can talk to me better than you can. So get out the mound. You know, it was crazy. It was nuts. It's cool to hear all every time we have a guest on and David obviously talks about him a lot. Anytime you talk about Mel Stoudemire, it's just the, the, the same story there and how positive of an influence he was on his pupils. It was terrific. Um, last one here, man. We appreciate the time. It is May 17th, at least on the day that we're recording. What do you think about every year that May 17th rolls around? Sometimes I forget, but these things now, it's like, I woke up at what, seven this morning and I already had 15, 20 uh, messages congratulating me on that, you know, because, you know, it's three hours ahead on the East Coast. And so everybody's like, you know, calling me. I'm sure there's going to probably be a couple hundred of them by the end of the day. But it's, you know, it's really nice. You know, it's shoot. There's only 23 of us that ever did it. There should be 24. He got hosed by Jim Joyce. But, uh, but, uh, but to, to have that, you know, to be in that elite group, it, it's, it's pretty special and it, it's very overwhelming. And, uh, and, and to be a part of that club, um, like I said, we got, we have bragging rights. So to me, that was great. So, you know, being able to throw a perfect game and now everybody, you know, you get, you get all the love and you do that, but you could do special things with just one you know, with one game. And, and that's what I did. So, but seven years ago, I started up my, my foundation, the perfect 33 foundation. So to me, you know, people resonate to that. Oh, perfect game. Oh yeah. David Wells, you do the perfect game. So I started my foundation for Navy SEALs and, and military for, uh, for traumatic brain injury. So I've been doing that. And he was like, you can plug whatever you want to do today. So I'm going to plug my foundation. Absolutely. And Dave's been, he's been to maybe one or two um, of them. And like, cause when he comes in anywhere that Dave and I go together, people just, they're in such awe because our stories start coming out and, and, and we have a great time. So I did that and I've got so many supporters that, uh, that come through, you know, through, they buy a foursome. So you can go to the perfect 33 foundation.org. I just got my dates today for uh, our, the other day. So it's uh, October 7th and 8th at Innisbrook where they have the ballast bar in Palm Harbor, Florida. So I'm doing my, uh, my event there because I moved it from San Diego out there. And, you know, the first 36 uh, foursomes are uh, sold. That's it. That's all we're doing. And usually I sell out on that. But to me, it's, you know, putting the perfect game behind that really, you know, it's a big deal to me because our military guys don't get the love that they need. And, you know, they're usually ridicule and chastise for, you know, what they did in war. And, you know, it's, you, you know, that story, but it's, these guys need help and they're not getting the help through the VA and all that. So that's why I started that. And, you know, like I said, Dave's been a big supporter of it. So I'm using his platform now to, to, you know, to help mine out, but you can go to that perfect 33 foundation.org. You can, you could read up on it and see what we do, but it's just a great time. I get all the celebrities 
out there. Larry the Cable Guy has been there since day one. He's one of my biggest supporters. I go to his event in June in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. But yeah, so I get all the celebrities to come out and, and pair them up with all the people who buy these foursomes. And we just have a great day. It turns into a shit show, which is pretty good. The, the Friday night, the dinner and the auction's great. And then uh, the golf is awesome. But, you know, these guys, all these athletes, they understand it. We help each other. So we just go out and have a great time. Boomer, this was a fantastic time. It was a great time talking with you here. And you can get a sense of the type of teammates and friends that you and Coney are. So this was a lot of fun. Coney, thanks for facilitating this, especially on May 17th. You know, we're releasing it May 18th, but this is, a, this is cool to be a part of. And Boomer, I mean, it wasn't my first baseball game that I went to, but it was the one that hooked me for life. And, you know, it's, you're talking to a guy who's working in baseball now. So who knows if I don't attend that game that you pitched and you're part of that exclusive club. Uh, Coney, you talk about it all the time. It's about the stories that you hear from people. So it's, it's just part of the reason why baseball is such an awesome, awesome game. No, it's great. So let me ask, do you have Cameo Day? Do you do Cameo? No, not yet. No. So I started Cameo during the pandemic. And, you know, you, you go on, you do a little uh, a video. Hey, I'm David Wells. All right, hey, I'm David Cohn, blah, blah, blah. And you do that and then people sign up and you name your price, whatever you want to do. You know, you see some of these guys are like six, $7,000 for a cameo, but you know, these are high A-list people, but if you keep it simple and, and I've gotten so many people and they're like, Hey, I was at your perfect game. And I just got one the other day. It's like the guy invited his buddy to go to the perfect game. And he decided to go to his mother-in-law's birthday party instead of going to the game. And, but you hear all these stories. And I thought I've met everybody that went to my perfect game. I was just like, everywhere I go in the world, people were at my, hey, I was at your perfect game. And they just come up to you randomly. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But the cameos are great because then you get to do, I do like a minute and a half to two minutes. And then I'll just start ripping on them. I'm like, how the hell are you not? I said, so, so let me ask you something. So since you didn't go to mine, did you go to David Cohn's? You know, and then, but sometimes you'll get a reply from them afterwards. But it, it's great to see that people still resonate to that perfect game because I think that's what everybody knows me for is a perfect game and not my career. So it's great. But if you're not on Cameo, Dave, get on it. It's great because you get to interact with a lot of people. And, if, and sometimes you get to meet them, you know, outside after you're doing a signing or whatever. It's, it, it's pretty cool because then you, got, you get to meet all these people, though, who idolized you. And then we're at that, that special day, you know, to me, it's, it's just such a feel good thing, you know, and I, and I love it, you know, and I embrace it, you know, even, even on the outside world where I go, Hey, Wellesie, that perfect game was awesome. Thanks, bro. Have a good one. It's awesome. It never, it's, it never gets old. So it's pretty awesome. Boomer, you can come back here anytime you want. I know this was your idea in the first place, right? You and Coney starting a podcast. <laughs> come, come back anytime you want. I, I think it would be great, man, for us to do it somewhere down the line. But yeah, thank you for having me. And, you know, I'll do anything for Dave. That's my boy. Love him to death. And, uh, you know, even though he's Stat Masterson now and he's got a great, career in the broad, a great career in the broadcast booth and, you know, moving around, he just, he just makes it enjoyable when you talk. And because it, the other, it was the other, uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh or sunday night it was sunday night and i i turned it on just to hear his like his monologue and going in there so i ended up watching like a couple couple innings of that game that's the most i've watched in three years 
but just to watch Dave and how he like the last second he'll throw something in there and then I'll just start chuckling it's like when I looked at Gabe Kapler I texted Dave I said did he get a facelift or something because I know Gabe very well his teammates with him and now his face is really tight his eyes are a little bittier I'm like did he get some work done and <laughs> I won't I won't I won't express what he said but it was just pretty cool and then and then all of a sudden Dave went dark I, I go are you doing him again because like going to New York all these years after I retire, I just hang with Dave and stay at his apartment. He'd be going. I go, you all right, Dave? He goes, oh yeah, I'm just gooning. I, I'm, I'm in my goon. I'm in my goon mode. So like on, on the broadcast, I'll see him. He'll just kind of be quiet. I'm like, are you gooning? He goes, yeah, I'm gooning. It's so good it's, to daydream. Daydreaming is very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. You should. Well, daydream believer, the monkeys. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> but yeah. So. I would love to come on whenever you guys, like I said, I'm retired, I'm bored. So I got nothing but time. So if you want more stories, bring me on. I don't think people will get too tired of it because we can add more. There's so much crap that we've left out. That would be so, so enjoyable. That's why I said we need to do a podcast because then we can let it all out. Let the demons out. We'll have you back on down the road for sure. And that road Perfect. isn't too far away. So thank no, you again, I, man. My pleasure. Thanks guys for, send up and, and making this happen. So I had a great time. Thank you. Got it. Happy anniversary. Thanks, Happy bro. Anniversary. Yes. Appreciate it. Everybody, I need to tell you about the stacks of cash up for grabs this baseball season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets no matter what, win or lose. You're looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during MLB season with DraftKings same game parlays. You can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team's going to win, how many bases will be stolen, you want to do total runs. There's a ton more that you can bet on. It's your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. And best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB. Bet just five bucks and get $150 in free bets, no matter what happens on the field. That's promo code SLAB on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. Here is where I read the fine print really quick. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details, MLB trademarks to use with permission. So David Boomer was talking about what you were doing in the later stages of that game, kind of egging them on a little bit. But if you go back and watch the broadcast, all the shots that had you in it were you slumping in the dugout with that big puffy jacket on that old you know that old style uh, I don't even know what you call it, the material you call it but it, it was like synonymous with the, the 1990s in terms of what you were seeing in the dugout anyway you were you you were slumped in the dugout and you're you pretty much had your head sticking out uh, out of this jacket and you all you could see is your sunglasses and your hat so that was like a natural emotion that we were getting a glimpse of with, with David Cohn during David Wells's perfect game what were you feeling in those moments when he was out on the mound I was pulling for him so hard you know I knew what it would mean for him personally I knew what it meant to our, for our team early in 1998 on May 17th you know we we had a great start to our season but we really needed David Wells to to be as good as he could be. And I just knew historically what that would mean, you know, for him, he was such a historian himself. He's a big memorabilia collector of a huge Babe Ruth fan pitching for the Yankees. At one point he actually uh, 
had a, a, an original Babe Ruth hat that he wore during an inning pitching at Yankee Stadium. That's how much of a historian he is. So I, I was so nervous for him. I was pulling for him so hard. I wanted it so badly for him. And those games sometimes are harder to watch than to pitch in when you're a player. And that, that's how I felt. I, I, I was almost more nervous watching his game than I was the next year pitching in my own. Something that struck me too, and I don't know if this is just me, but guys at the end, David Wells got carried off the field. And Kona, you got carried off the field at the end of your perfect game. And I'm trying to think who was the last athlete to be carried off the field, whether it's in the four major North American sports. I couldn't recall of anyone, like not even Tom Brady, I don't think has ever been carried off the field. And I think of Joe Torre being carried off the field after winning those World Series. And I, it's like such a celebration of the past. And I'm wondering why is that? Why don't we, why don't we carry main characters in terms of athletic feats uh, off the field anymore? Like, why don't, why don't we see that often in today's day and age? That's a great point. You know, I remember when Dwight Gooden threw his no hitter back in 1996 for the Yankees. That was the first time I kind of remember seeing it in a, from somebody in a Yankee uniform. And how, how emotional that was. Everybody knows Dwight Gooden's story and his ups and downs and demons and battles on and off the field. And to be able to come full circle and throw that particular game, that perfect game against the Seattle Mariners that night, I was sitting in a hospital bed uh, recovering from a, you know, a arterial bypass surgery because I had an aneurysm in my shoulder and Dwight Gooden stepped into my spot in the rotation and promptly threw a, threw a, a no hitter. So uh, when they carried him off the field, I, I remember watching it and almost tears rolling down my face because of the emotion, how emotional it was and knowing Dwight and what he had been through. So, yeah, I, I, may, I, I don't recall seeing it since then. It's, it's a great point you bring up, Shaq. Uh, I think after Dwight Gooden, when Boomer did his, it became natural to do it because we'd already done it with Dwight Gooden. And then when I did it the next year, it just it was a natural progression. There was like three years in a row, we did it for pitchers that did something historic on, on, on the mound at Yankee stadium. So that, yeah, that was, that was the trifecta that I remember is those three back to back to back years. I remember Tory being carried off at Chase stadium too, after 2000, but it's like such a sight of yesteryear. And I'm wondering like, how did we, how did we move away from that? Why doesn't it happen anymore? Especially I mean, you think about like the San Francisco giants when they were winning their three over you know, that five, six year period as well. Like I don't, I don't recall Bruce Bochy being carried off yeah. the field or Madison Bumgarner right, being right. carried off. It's just something that, that kind of stuck with me for whatever reason, uh, just uh, an old time celebration, I guess that we, you know, we, that yeah. it's just left in the past, sadly. Kind of a Yankee thing there during the Yankee yeah, years during sure. the dynasty there. Yeah. I, I, I know other team. I mean, was didn't, didn't Hodges get carried off the field and, 60 uh 69 i feel like that yeah, that, no, that that does ring a bell yeah. yes i mean every now and then i feel like especially if you go back 50s 60s i don't know if it was maybe a new york thing but uh the the yankees doing it that yeah very interesting from, from observation my, yeah, yeah. From, from my memory i i guess they were the last to, to have done it so it was just something that's you know stuck out to me watching that game again all right uh james what do you have for us this week in pitching history well, this the whole episode <laughs> has been basically this week in pitching history. So we'll do something else. Uh, May 21st, 1981, 41 years ago, Saturday, in the first round of the NCAA tournament, one of the greatest games pitched at any level. Ron Darling of Yale and Frank Viola of St. John's, two future MLB stars, 
trade zeros for 11 innings. Darling strikes out 16 without allowing a hit. And then in the 12th, Steve Scaffa breaks up the no-no with an opposite field scratch single, steals second, steals third. Then a batter reaches on an error, steals second, delayed steal, throw home. Scaffa scores, scores the game's only run for a one nothing St. John's win. Heartbreaking loss for Ron Darling and Yale. The game was featured in Roger Angel's essay, The Web of the Game, one of the great baseball uh, pieces of baseball writing of all time when Angel is taking in the game with a 91-year-old Smokey Joe Wood, who is a legendary dead ball era wow. pitcher and longtime Yale baseball coach. So the whole idea was, hey, let's go to this game together. It ends up being this, this legendary game. And it, it's and Coney, I know you uh, you know all three uh, participants well, Roger Angel, Ron Darling, Frank Viola. Uh, a, a legendary uh, performance and, and game on this week, May 21st, 1981. Great call, James. Maybe the, you know, a lot of people feel that's the greatest college game ever played and we're still talking about it. And thanks. Thank you for bringing that one up. But yes, Roger Angel, the best uh, two teammates, Frank Viola, Ron Darling, two number one drafts too. I mean, uh, two great pitchers in their own right. Great careers. Uh, so yes, I mean, it, it, it was, I wish I could have seen that game. I wish I was there, you know, and Roger Angel made you feel like you were there. That was the kind of writer Roger Angel was. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. Uh, nothing to add. I mean, Coney, you know, all three Roger Angel. I, I, one of my, I still read his books every now and then. I mean, they're, if you're a baseball fan and you haven't read a Rod, Roger Angel book, they're, they're timeless. So go, go educate yourself, gain some knowledge with Roger Angel, uh, all-time writer, especially when it comes to some some baseball stories. It's terrific stuff. Uh, all right, three up, three down. Gentlemen, where are we going here this week? We, we you know, we talked about Adam Wainwright, Yadi Molina at the top in the opener. Uh, David, where do you want to continue here with three up, three down? Well, I mentioned this this young pitcher, you know, on, on one of our earlier podcasts, and he's a follow for me. He's just such a tremendous talent. He struggled a little bit here and there in his rookie year, but really came up big in his last start, and that's Hunter Green with the Cincinnati Reds. Part of that no-hitter where they actually lost the game, I think one of five now or so. I'll, I'll defer to James on that, but there have been other games where a team has thrown a no-hitter and lost, and that's what happened to the Cincinnati Reds this year, and but Hunter Green was just spectacular. I think he was over seven innings of no-hit baseball, and he's figuring it out. You know, we, we talked about his power. He can throw the ball at least 100 miles an hour, but he's also got a really good slider with it. And he's starting to figure things out on when to use uh, his pitches and how to pitch a little bit. And I, I just love the way he goes about it. His two-plus pitches, I mean, well above average by any metrics, you, by the eye test, by uh, spin rate, by vertical or horizontal break, by quality, by stuff. You know, Saris has a, uh, an article he comes out with and talks about stuff plus and in, in ranking each individual pitch. Well, talk about stuff plus. Hunter Green's got stuff plus galore in both of those pitches and more on the way as I see it. So, yes, I'm going to throw a little love Hunter Green's way, even though, you know, Cincinnati Reds were part of a no-hitter and lost. Uh, he did not lose. Uh, he's starting to win the game of learning how to pitch. One of six games in which a team did not allow a hit and still lost. It's tough to be on the other end of that, but as far as the, the long-term trajectory of Hunter Green, yeah, David, I mean, it just seems like, hey, you, you know, you, you start off maybe hot, the teams adjust, 
you're adjusting now maybe a, a, a smaller sample size of the league adjusting on you, so to speak. But like you mentioned, just learning how to pitch, it's going to happen. It's, it's pitching nature. So I am excited to, to see what Hunter Green can do over the course of a full first season in the big leagues. And this is going to definitely be, even though he lost, it's going to be one of the highlights here for, for Hunter Green individually. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And he's uh, with, with each start, you could just see the maturation process happening and it's fun to watch. You see a young pitcher with, with great ability figuring it out as he goes. And there's certain lessons you can only learn with reps, certain lessons you can learn by yourself on the mound that nobody can teach you. No pitching coach, no manager can teach you these lessons. You have to learn them for yourself in the middle of that diamond, towing that slab. And then the light bulb effect effect happens for you and you alone. All right, I'm going to go with a guy whose light bulb is probably continuing to shine. He has one of those, you know, iridescent light bulbs, and it's just never going to going to burn out here. I'm talking about Justin Verlander. Needed to throw the spotlight on Verlander, but also that entire Astros pitching staff because they won 11 games in a row and 13 of 14. And in that stretch, they recorded six shutouts as a staff, and their ERA during the winning streak as a team was 0.91. So top to bottom, it has been excellent for Houston. But Verlander individually, he stands out for several reasons because we know he's coming back from, from Tommy John's surgery. He pitched Sunday and he threw five scoreless innings, but he needed 107 pitches to get through five. And in a way, I thought that was a good sign because he continues to build himself up from Tommy John surgery and that Tommy John rehab. And we know he's a different breed compared to the younger pitchers in today's game. So him getting to 107 pitches stuck out for me. It's the most he's thrown since 2019. I thought it was a great sign for him and a bad sign for hitters, obviously. But also another footnote, he hit 98 miles an hour in the same game. And that was the hardest pitch of the season for him. So Oh, on top of that, he did on a four days rest. And that was the first time this season that Verlander's pitched on four days rest. So you combine all of those, the pitch count, the velocity, pitching on your normal routine. Finally, I know the Astros are experimenting with the six man rotation. Not only does he have a low ERA, the lowest whip at the time that we're recording here, feels like Justin Verlander is getting stronger as well. And that's kind of hard to believe based on his first handful of starts here in 2022. It's a great call. You know, he's going to be the Tom Brady of baseball. He's got a yeah. new elbow. He's in superb physical condition and he has the motivation. He's not going anywhere. So I could definitely, you know, how many more years can Justin Verlander pitch? Maybe three, four, five. We're looking Tom Brady territory before this guy's done. So he's a real follow at this point. And he's already going to Cooperstown as his next stop. In my mind, he's the preeminent power pitcher of his generation. And, and in fact, when they came out with the, the movie fastball, uh, the documentary about, about fastball. Um, he was the guy they, you know, he's the first guy they wanted to, to talk to and feature in, in, in that movie. So yeah, watch out. Justin Verlander's got, got a lot left in his tank. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's appointment viewing. If you haven't already done it, I think he's pitching either Friday or Saturday against the Rangers, but it's, it's an incredible feat. What he's been able to do at his age, just terrific stuff. James, what do you have? Well, first of all, yeah, great. Verlander's going to Cooperstown. He has to stop pitching first. So we'll see when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pablo Lopez, tip of the cap to Pablo Lopez of the Marlins, a 105 ERA facing the Nats on Wednesday. 
He's given up six runs this season in seven starts, four of them in one game. So he's been absolutely lights out, getting it done with a low 90s fastball and an absolutely stupefying changeup. Great start to the season for Pablo Lopez. Couldn't agree Definitely more. He's fun, yeah. yeah, he's fun to watch. He is. Movement, too. His ball moves like crazy and in tremendous command, too. Right up there in uh, the, the ERA lead at the moment, at the time we're recording this as well, the the Marlins. I know Jesus Lazardo went down, but it's with an injury, not not with, you know, down in performance. But that that Marlins staff, despite them maybe not winning games, they are a talented bunch and you should keep your eye on it if you're a fan of pitching for sure. Uh, all right, guys, that's going to that's gonna wrap it up here this week. David, when July 18th rolls around, we got to get a special guest on as, as you walk us through our, our perfect game. So we'll, we'll definitely be working on securing that guest as you take us through your perfect bid. But this was fun. I mean, just being able to talk to Boomer and seeing you two kind of yuck it up as well. Uh, it, was, it was a real treat. Appreciate you hooking it up with Boomer. Yes, he's one of a kind. Without a doubt. So uh, if you don't know anything about David Wells, you're going to learn something by watching this podcast. That's for sure. All right, guys, that is going to do it here for this episode. Big thanks, as always, to our incredible producer, Dan Rourke. New episodes of the show, they drop each and every week, Tuesday, mostly. On this week, it's Wednesdays. We'll, we'll keep you up to date when those episodes drop. Please rate, review, subscribe. The best way that you can support the show here. Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.